aloha. We're glad you've joined us for this Reunion Hawaii Church podcast. These teachings by our pastoral team are recorded live during our weekly services in Honolulu, Hawaii. We hope you will be blessed by this teaching. Hi, Reunion. What a good night, huh? Uh, I have to brag, and it's not pride, but it's close. I have the most amazing third years serving me this year. Um, Misa, Zoe, Maddie, Grace. Um, do you guys want to come up here? We just... Uh, they're going to sing and dance for you. Just kidding. Um, I wanted to just uh, have a little bit of prophetic time tonight. I felt like the Lord was speaking over people here, and I asked the third years if they wanted to uh, join in on the fun. Um, I just have a couple of quick ones, and I'll turn it over to you ladies. Um, where'd my guy go? You're taking a drink of water right now. Yes, you. You, yes, you. What's your name? Shout it out. Noah. Noah. Hi, man. Um, in the pre-meeting that we had tonight, uh, somebody was saying that they felt like the Lord was actually commissioning different people in the room tonight. So anytime that we feel like the Lord is doing something corporate, I start asking him who that is specifically for, the individuals. And he highlighted you to me, man. Um, I felt like he's commissioning you into something that you've been praying about. And I, I saw these two words, foreign journey. But it wasn't foreign necessarily, meaning like a, another country. Uh, it just meant um, a foreign journey, meaning something so radically new for you. It seems like it, it would almost feel like you're relearning everything, like this new foreign destination. Um, and that was about it. But I felt like him say, like, rest assured, rest assured, like he, he, you're in his hands. So can we just reach our hands out to Noah? We bless you with what the Lord is doing in your life, what he's commissioning you into. Uh, we say yes and amen to his plans. They're so good. They're plans to prosper you and to protect you. And we just ask that his face would, would shine upon you so brightly that his light would literally reflect off you to the people that you're going to be serving. So bless you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> I first want to just publicly, I already prayed over this person, but Olivia, can you stand up? Olivia, for those of you that don't know, serves on basically every single little thing that you can do in a church. And Olivia walked by me earlier, and I was just struck with a different fragrance on you. Um, you just smell different. You look different. Like, there's just a difference on you. And I just have to publicly recognize that the Lord is doing something new. He has brought you into a new season. He has put more on your shoulders in the easiest yoke possible. And I believe that you are going to fly through your yeses. You're going to offer him up everything. And it's going to be a beautiful season of just saying yes and a little bit more of being seen and being really okay with that. Um, and I just want to say, and all of us to come alongside, just an increase or a new season for you. Um, and like, you deserve to be publicly honored. You deserve to be seen. You deserve to be loved. And you are. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to pray over you real quick. Thank you, Jesus, for Olivia. Thank you for this beautiful daughter that serves, that goes lower still, always goes lower still. A daughter that has said yes and yes again, yes behind closed doors. And thank you, Jesus, for a season of saying yes, probably on stages, or yes in front of people, and yes to being seen. We say yes to an increase. We say yes to more. In Jesus' name. Um, okay, I have this guy that was up here, and I prayed for him. I, yeah. You. Can you stand up, please? <laughs> um, Alex is your name. I just felt you were standing in front of me, and I just saw this, like, when you, I didn't know that you had put your hand up or anything, but I just felt led to put my hand on you and just come into agreement with what the Lord was doing. Um, and as Nina was closing, um, and she was sending out a commissioning, I actually saw this, like, ball of yarn, 
and you were like looking at it and you were trying to untangle it and it wasn't working. And the Lord just said like, let me untangle this for you. Like I am the redeemer. Um, and I felt like it was specifically with your calling, something that you, like you've known it deep in your spirit, like what the Lord has commissioned you to do. Um, and there may have been times where you tried to make it happen and you're like, well, now I'm like looking at it and it's a tangled thing and I don't want to untangle it. Like, what if I, what if I, what if I, what if I, and the Lord was like, let it go. Let me untangle this for you. Let me untangle this with you. Um, and I just want to speak peace over you um, and like that he is the redeemer. He redeems every little thing and he is so good at what he does. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to bless you with that. Um, Hi, you guys. I'm Zoe. And that was Misa. Um, okay, first I'll start with this. Um, I just heard the name Thomas. I don't know if, is, does the name Thomas mean anyone, anything to anyone? A brother, um, cousin, Emma, you? Okay, a couple people. Could you guys stand up just so I know who I'm talking to, if this means anything to you? Um, so... I specifically like heard the name Thomas and I was like, okay, Lord, like, I don't know any Thomases. What does this mean? And I looked up the definition and Thomas literally just means the word twin, but I didn't feel that it necessarily had anything to do with um, you, like in relation to this guy, Thomas, but I felt like whoever this is, he needs to know, like he was meant to be a replica of Jesus. Like, twin as in like he's meant to be a duplicate like we are all called to be um like a representation of jesus but i felt so strongly that like you're meant to minister to this guy thomas i don't know what he looks like in your life but to reveal jesus to him and like pour into him and say like this is who you're called to be um and i just felt that so strongly so yeah i bless you guys with that that's the first one um and then the second one was for this guy in the black hat and the blue tank top. Yeah, hi. Um, what's your name? Anthony. Anthony. Um, nice to meet you. I'm Zoe. Um, is this, have you been going to reunion for a little bit or? Okay, okay, cool. Well, I just got this word. Um, I immediately saw you and the Lord highlighted you to me. Um, and I just, felt like, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I felt like people have labeled you all of these different things throughout your life. Some good, some have been hurtful, just um, people have put labels and like given you a name and, um, but I just felt so strongly that God picked you out and he calls you his son, his friend, his beloved, his treasure, his brother and his joy. And I just wrote down that he is putting a new name on you, a new label, if you will. I see him ripping off these paper name tags and putting a wooden plaque before you. And it says son on it. He calls you son. Um, and yeah, Anthony, I just feel so strongly like you are so highlighted to me. And um, I just want to break off, honestly, like any labels that you've, that people have labeled over you in your life. And God wants you to know, like, he calls you son. Like, he picked you before he picked others. Like, he picks you. He chooses you. Um, and, yeah, he's, you got a wooden plaque that says son on it. So, yeah, amen. Hi, guys. I'm Maddie. You could clap for that. That was a great, <laughs> great word. <laughs> um, I really felt something for you're sitting in, like, the second and back row and the second one with a long blonde hair, dirty blonde hair, you're looking behind. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was your name? What is it? Megan. Megan. Um, I was standing in the back, and I just saw you worshiping, and I really felt like, I don't know if you have kids, but that you have such a call of like motherhood over your life, and you have such a call like for women, and you just make women feel loved and you make them feel seen, and you make them feel safe. Um, and that's something that's really special. That's something that the world needs. And if that's not something you already feel, I feel like he's just, the Lord is 
giving you that more and more and giving you much more of a heart for that and you're just growing your heart for the women in your life if it's your mom sisters just friends um so i just want to bless you megan we bless you in the name of jesus we bless the call of motherhood over your life we bless the women in your life that they come to know jesus that they get to look to you and it's not scary or stressful but you just feel the anointing of the lord to love freely and to love fully so we bless you megan amen amen um my name is grace and um, I have a word for a young man in the back with the blonde hair, and you're holding your little one. Yeah, what's your name? Simon. Simon. Good name. Anyway, first I'm going to read a uh, scripture that the Lord highlighted for you. And be before I share, I also want to say that um, I felt like this is for some others in here as well. So if you're feeling like the Holy Spirit is nudging you as, as I share, then... Um, just take it as yours, too. Okay, so this is in Matthew chapter 6, verse, six uh, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up, your, up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then, um, yeah, I felt like for you, um, Simon, I felt like, whoops, okay, hang on. I felt like God said he's so pleased with you and that you have done well setting your affections on things above, that he's so proud of you, Simon. And I, he said, I felt like that you bring him great delight and that you are indeed the apple of his eye. I feel like he is inviting you to come closer, so much closer to him. Also, I hear him saying that you are doing well leading your family. So I just honor who you are, Simon. I honor the Jesus that lives in you and um, the way you operate in life. And I, so I just bless you. I bless the treasures in heaven that you're storing up, even as you raise your children, lead your family. Uh, it's so significant to the Father. And so, yeah, I just bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one more. Um, you're sitting next to Elijah. Yeah. Hi. Uh, what's your name? Edwin? Edmund. Edmund. Fantastic. Edmund, the Lord loves you. <laughs> um, I was just, I saw you worshiping back in the back wall, and I didn't quite think much of it, but I just took notice of you. And when... Um, I was thinking about words, the Lord just brought you to my mind. And I just remember just like the sweet sight of you worshiping the Lord and how it seemed like all time had stopped. Um, it seemed like you were in a very sacred, secret place with him, even in a room of a ton of people. And um, as soon as I saw you, I almost saw like a physical light flashing over you, um, even in the back of the room. And I just saw like this glowing, beautiful, heavenly honey flowing over you. Um, and I just feel like you're in a season of sweetness. You're in a season of receiving. You're in a season of the Lord just coming close as a, as a good friend and as a sweet father, um, and even just revealing how, he, how much he loves you and just saying things that you're like, oh, well, that wasn't like needed, but he's like, yes, but I want to tell you how great of a son you are and how much I love you and how well you're doing in life and in relationship and in family and in friends. Like, I just feel like he's just showering you with attention. Um, and I just feel him saying that he loves 
to have you in the apple of your uh, apple of his eye that he loves to just fixate on you in whatever room that you're in in whatever situation that you're in like he's always zoning in on you um, and that you have access to that attention you have access to that much of the lord whatever you are um, and i just feel like he wants you to know that thank you. one more this isn't this isn't a word um i have a question um, my feet have been hurting this entire time I've been standing up here, specifically my arches. Um, and I felt like the Lord was healing someone as we were giving prophetic words. So is there anyone in here whose arches hurt in their feet? And if they don't, that's totally fine. It'll be someone else. Um, my dog sitter. All right, well, we release that then. Done to you, Biza. Yep. That's it. Great. Great. Thank you, ladies. Give it up for my amazing, beautiful third years. That's one of those, you guys can settle that off the stage type things. Uh, I just have one more. Jesse, I really like you. You're amazing. Um, here, listen, you guys sitting next to her, this is all, I, I don't have a word for you, but the Lord's doing something in you wouldn't believe, and the people sitting next to her are supposed to cover her the whole service. Just cover her. Okay. All right. You guys ready? Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Let's go straight to Psalm 51 tonight. Uh, last week when Leah was preaching, she highlighted this very famous psalm. This is the psalm that uh, David wrote after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband, Uriah. This is a psalm of repentance. And I want to just highlight these three verses to you. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering." The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. But by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, before we move on to the next slide, I, I want to highlight something very interesting, and I'm just gonna take away some words. Most of the words, or some of the words will stay. So let's go to the next slide. I just wanna highlight those two passages. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. And then you jump down and it says, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. Leave that there just for a minute. Isn't it interesting that in the span of three verses, God says he does not delight in sacrifices. He does not delight in offerings. And then within three verses, he says he does delight in those very same things. That seems a little contradictory. So what's changing, right? Does he change? What changes his mind from rejecting the sacrifice and the offering in the top passage? And then just a little bit longer into delighting it. And it, you can see there's no indication that the thing being sacrificed or the thing being offered changed. It just says that his delight changed. Well, let me show you what changed. Go to the next slide. Do we have one more slide? There it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what changed. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That, that word broken literally means to break, to shatter. And the word contrite means to crush. It's, it's this idea of surrender and yielding and, and letting yourself be pressed by the Lord. So what changed between the top of that passage and the bottom of that passage? It was the heart that changed. Repentance happened in that purple section. It's repentance that brings his delight upon the things he previously turned away from. I want us to understand that it's the condition of our hearts that we bring to him that seems to dictate whether he looks at it with rejection or whether he looks at it with delight. 
even when the sacrifices are exactly the same. What I'm trying to say is you can bring something to the Lord that's exactly the same that someone else brings to the Lord and he will delight in one of them and he will reject the other because it's the condition of our heart that creates value in that thing being offered to him. And so often we think that his value um, comes from dollars or time or talent And we think it's the thing that's being sacrificed, the actual item being sacrificed that stirs him. But the truth is I don't think he really cares too much about the item being sacrificed. He cares about the heart of the one sacrificing that item. Again, we value dollars and time and talent, and we can give God a million pounds of gold and watch him reject it. We can study our Bibles 20 chapters for 20 hours a day, every single day, and turn to look for him, and he's left us alone in our studies. But other times, we can just give him one word of praise from our heart, and we find ourselves exalted. The greatest gift to give him is not the perfect church service. The greatest gift is right there. It's the broken heart. It's the contrite heart. It's the broken spirit. Understand this. If you take anything away, take this away tonight. Our heart dictates the worth of our sacrifice. Our heart dictates the worth of our sacrifice. Again, the entire context of Psalm 51 is David repenting from adultery and murder. And what this is showing us is that God is not interested in rituals to appease him, especially when it comes to repentance. He does not want ritual with repentance. In other words, save your token prayers of repentance for some other God, because our God doesn't want those. He wants a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In other words, the outward actions that we think he's so desperate for us to jump through, he's not. It's the inward transformation. We've probably all been to places, services, churches, schools, where they put on the show and they make it spectacular and they do what all the hip churches are doing on YouTube and and make it look exactly the same. And I'm telling you, with some places, God absolutely delights in that. And he is laughing and rejoicing on his throne. And other times when he sees that, he turns away and says, "I I don't even know you guys. True inward transformation only comes from a broken and contrite heart. And I love, I love that because it says um, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And then I don't know if you notice this, but there's a promise attached to that. It says that God won't despise it. In other words, he will accept a heart in that condition. And that's a promise. It stirs him. It ministers to him. It puts him in the rightful place in our lives. And it actually does something in him. It, it boggles my mind that I have the ability to stir the Lord's heart. Let me rephrase that. My, my heart has the ability to stir his heart. Not my offering, not my sacrifice. If he wanted that, I'd give it to him. It's what, literally what it says. But he wants this. This is what makes my offering and my sacrifice valuable to him. Well, tonight we're going to talk about this idea Um, we're going to talk about two different things. We're going to talk about the Pharisees, and we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Two people who didn't know each other very well. About 200 years before Jesus uh, walked the face of the earth, there was a sect of Judaism that emerged called Pharisees. Um, And the Pharisees were actually not as elite as the Sadducees. We've all heard of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the experts of the law. Well, the Sadducees were like the most elite um, sect. You know, if you think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even though it's apples to oranges, that's religious. Now I'm going to give a political analogy. It's kind of like Democrats and Republicans. They're both in that thing, and they're two different parties. They're kind of competing against each other. Well, the Sadducees were the elitists. They were um, this aristocratic uh, family of priests that you actually had to be born into the lineage of these priests to become a Sadducee. You couldn't join them if you didn't have Sadducee in your blood. 
and you had to go through all this training, um, but really it was your, your lineage that got you into being a Sadducee. But the Pharisees, anyone could become a Pharisee if you jump through all the hoops. So that's why there was more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. It was actually a less elite club, if you want to look at it that way. And the Pharisees, uh, their main system of belief revolved around what we call the law, the Mosaic law, the Old Covenant. And while they never really set out to do so, what happened with the Pharisees is more or less they ended up with their sect worshiping the law instead of the one who wrote the law. They actually put their faith in the letter instead of the Lord. Here's a famous statement from Jesus out of John 5. It says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. In other words, don't look to these scriptures that you think have life. Don't look to them for life. Look to me for life, and the scriptures talk all about me. And again, it's important to remember, Jesus said that to the Pharisees. How many of us today make this same mistake where too many times we think that scripture is life, but it's not. Jesus is life, and he's found in scripture. And that's why we've had so many weeks where we've talked about the importance of finding the author of scripture when you read scripture. Uh, don't use that book. Don't use your Bible without the author of the Bible, because it will turn into legalism. Go listen to the podcast. You hear me talk all about it. I don't want to go there today. What I want to keep going with is the idea that Pharisees loved the law, the Old Covenant. They loved the law, but their belief system actually went way further than just the law. What the Pharisees did was, over the years, they added all of these extra rules and traditions that were based on the law. And so they added hundreds and hundreds of these rules, these regulations, on top of the law, which made it nearly impossible to follow all of the rules and regulations. Okay, we're talking, I, th I think they said like 600 and something rules they added to the law. Eventually, the Pharisees weren't just experts of following the law. Eventually, the Pharisees became experts of following their own rules and traditions that were based on the law, things that were added to the law. <clears throat> And the reason why the Pharisees did this, why they added so many hundreds and hundreds of these extra laws, uh, because they felt that these laws that they were putting into place were kind of like fence posts to protect the law and kind of kept people far away from breaking the rule of the law. So they built these fences, like if this is the law, they would build these fences that were wider and wider and wider so that it was almost like a safety net. So maybe you might break the first rule and maybe you might break the second rule, but you won't break the third, fourth, and fifth rule before you get to the law. Therefore, it keeps you safe from breaking the rules of the law. It was like boundary lines to let you know, like, hey, you're getting too close to breaking this law. You only broke this rule. So penance can be made for that. And so again, if, if they created enough rules surrounding a law in their mind, people would never then be in danger of actually crossing the boundary lines of the law. The rules in their mind were safety nets to prevent crossing into sin. The religious spirit is always interested in creating rules that prevent sin. It's never interested in creating hearts that don't want to sin. It's always about rules with the religious spirit, with legalism. The word Pharisee means separatism, one who is separated. That's literally what they were called. And they took pride in upholding the law. They took pride in upholding all of these extra traditions that they put into place, and they saw themselves as elite. They saw themselves superior to, you know, common man who was breaking all these semi-important rules and regulations, and they actually took pride in their separation from them. They took pride in their separation. What was the sin that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven? Pride, huh? Let's think about that in your free time. One of the Pharisees I guess, gravest sins 
was that they insisted that other people follow their rules, that they, they insisted that everyone abide by these traditions, these regulations that they put into place. And so the Pharisees would operate under this religious spirit, this religious mindset, and they would actually pass judgment on anyone who broke any of these rules that they had created. Do you think this created cultures of love or of fear? Mm -hmm. Anytime that a people group um, becomes self-authorized spiritual judges, you're going to create cultures of fear. You're going to create cultures where uh, the motivation is fear of breaking the law instead of loving the one who has created the law. So you don't want to break them. Does that make sense? And because the Pharisees were only interested in if people broke the law, uh, that tells me that they weren't interested in the person. They were interested in the rules. If someone broke the rules, the rule was upheld and the person was ostracized and outcast. Again, let me summarize that for you. Pharisees don't care about people. They care about rules. They care about being right. They care about authority. To a Pharisee, rules and regulations are always more important than a person. That's why when the blind man was healed by Jesus, the Pharisees gathered this man. They gathered his mom and dad. They asked him question after question. They made him repeat. They'd ask him the same question and make him repeat the same answers. There's not a single Pharisee who celebrated that this man who was once blind can now see. His whole life he was blind. And nobody took the time or had the decency to say, like, hey, that's great news that you can see now. They all attacked the man, they attacked the family, they attacked Jesus for performing miracles in the way that broke the Pharisees' rules. Because the rules are king. The rules are what makes life go around to a Pharisee. Well, one of the things Jesus makes ultra clear throughout uh, the Gospels is that Pharisees grieved his heart. Pharisees grieved the Lord's heart. Um, Jesus was never moved by the Pharisees' quest for justice. He was never moved by the Pharisees' desire to be doctrinally correct. Listen carefully. Jesus never congratulated the Pharisees. He never said, good job, guys. Way to go. Way to keep everyone in order. Jesus never once uh, gave a hint that the Pharisees were needed or appreciated. He never once showed them compassion or tenderness. He was always harsh to the Pharisees. He was always harsh and rebuked them. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is where it gets confusing because if we think like a Pharisee, we're going to just think, well, what do we have in common? You know, Jesus, uh, for the most part, the Pharisees believed a lot of the same stuff as Jesus. Jesus and the Pharisees both believed in the infallibility of the law, of the word. They both believed in the importance of teaching truth, um, teaching the word. They both believed in the resurrection of the dead. It was the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus and the Pharisees uh, both founded a lot of their core beliefs on the same essential matters of the faith. They both upheld the same practices and feasts and Sabbaths. So why was Jesus so harsh on them? Why didn't Jesus spend more time attacking the wicked tax collectors or the drunkards or the sinners? Well, it's because Jesus actually tells us that it's because the Pharisees caused so much harm. It was the Pharisees who caused so much harm. When they guilted and manipulated people into following the rules, the Bible says it made those new rule followers twice as much a child of hell than before. That was the outcome of following the Pharisees. The Pharisees would get more excited about someone following their tradition than somebody coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And at one point, Jesus rebukes them and said, you, he's talking to the Pharisees, you shut off the kingdom of heaven for people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are trying to enter in. If there was one thing that made Jesus upset over and over. It's when people prevented others from entering into the kingdom of God. Biblically speaking, the Pharisees uh, are the perfect representation of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Righteousness found in self, right? The Pharisees took great pride in their actions 
following these rules, thinking that their actions actually created a righteousness in their lives. We would call that righteousness through works. Their works made them think that they were holy and righteous. And because the Pharisees studied the law, the old covenant, which is a works-based covenant, they tended to elevate works of righteousness as the basis of their holiness. If that's what you're worshiping, of course you're going to do what it says. And if it's works-based, you will become works-based. Jesus comes and he actually holds their own self-righteousness against them. And while he never says, let me rephrase this. This is what he says. You hypocrites, you serpents, you whitewashed tombs. To the, the people who believed a lot of the same things that he believed. That's what he called them. To the people who were dead set on spreading God's word. Does that sound a little scary right now? Because spreading God's word sounds like a wonderful task. They were missing something. And we're going to talk about what they were missing. Well, I just love when Jesus rips the Pharisees a new one. He is just brutal on them. And in one of the most famous passages in all scripture, it's Matthew chapter 5. It's the Beatitudes, or some people call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's this beautiful passage. And towards the end of uh, the Beatitudes, in Matthew 5.20, it says this. Jesus says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand that what he was doing here was insulting them very, very plainly in their face, kind of like rubbing it in their face? Most people at that time felt that the scribes and the, the experts of the law and the Pharisees were the most righteous people because they followed the law down to the letter. Like they did everything. They even followed the regulations. But Jesus said their righteousness that they thought was righteousness wasn't even enough to get them into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Pharisees, what you're doing can't even let you eat at my table. Like this is still that Isaiah mindset that your righteousness is like filthy rags because they're missing something. Well, part of the gospel that Jesus brought was so disruptive to Jewish culture at the time, this, this religion, because the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the experts of the law, it was very exclusive, but Jesus's gospel was inclusive to everyone. The religious Jews... You have to either be born in, go through the schooling, go through the memorization, go through the cleansings, all these things, very exclusive. And they felt protected and separated by their false sense of righteousness that Jesus said wasn't even righteousness at all. But when Jesus shows up to the scene with the repent for the kingdom of God is at hand message, he, he then spends all this time bursting their religious exclusive bubbles and explaining to people that the kingdom of God now included all who previously were excluded. In other words, this is not just for the scribes and Pharisees. This is for the weak. It's for the lowly. It's for the poor. It's for the broken. Now it's for the lame. It's for the blind. It's for the lepers. And this is one that made the Pharisees really mad when he started saying it's for the unrighteous. It's for the sinners. That's who I came to covenant with. And when he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, what he was saying is that the day of mercy, the day of grace, the day of hope, the day of redemption, the day of peace, the day of new life, the day of joy, the day of justice, the day of the king's government, it's here, and it's fulfilled for all who repent and believe, not just those ultra-religious people. Because previously, it was just the religious people. And then Jesus just crushes them some more, and he makes us all kings and priests. He made you a priest who didn't go through preschool. He made you a priest who didn't go through 20 years of Sadducee school. And in that Sermon on the Mount, you know, I love it when you go through each one, you know, if you're weak, if you're poor, if you're broken, you know. It's, he doesn't say if you're weak, if you're poor, if you're broken, you sneak into the kingdom. What he says, if you're weak, the kingdom actually belongs to you. It's yours. Theirs is the kingdom. They inherit it. They receive mercy. It's so unfair. It's so unfair. And yet that's what he considers to be justice. 
God is not interested in fairness. He, he is interested in justice, and his justice often looks very different from ours. And this was an absolute slap in the face to the Pharisees who thought their self-righteousness had earned them the kingdom. Their self-righteousness earned them an inheritance and it earned them mercy. And if anyone were to receive access to the kingdom of God, they felt it should be them. They played by the rules. And that's why when Jesus says, your, your righteousness isn't even enough to get you into the kingdom of God, it won't even let you enter. Um, it caused a little tension, as you can imagine, that their righteousness wasn't enough. Because throughout that Sermon on the Mount, the, the people groups that he mentions, every single one, every people group he mentions to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they considered those people groups undeserving. And yet Jesus kept saying, but it's theirs, it's theirs. They inherit this, they get that. One of the things that Jesus was continually teaching the Pharisees uh, was this concept that grace is actually incompatible with the law. Therefore, grace is incompatible with the Pharisees. And so many times, Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees, the, the tension and the fight was actually over grace. The Pharisees and the experts of the law, the scribes, they had one focus, the law of Moses. They learned it, they read it, they ate it, they slept it, they, everything. They knew it inside and out. And the purpose of the law, the purpose of was to point out sin. That's why the Bible says we have the old covenant. It pointed out sin. It was to separate God's chosen people, the old covenant, the law, to separate God's chosen people. It was to let mankind know that he was unworthy. It was to let mankind know that he was in need of a savior. What does that word Pharisee mean again? Separated. Just like the law that they new inside and out. It was about separation. And then Jesus comes, and he has a whole new focus for the new covenant, where mankind is no longer just in need of a Savior. Now mankind has a Savior. And everything changes when the Savior is here, when we repent for the kingdom is at hand now. It's not this future thing. It's here. The focus was no longer sin in the new covenant. The focus now is what Christ has done for us. We no longer have to earn that salvation that we had to earn under the old covenant. Now it's freely given, and it's freely given to all, even the undeserving ones. While grace is a wonderful topic, I, I want to steer this ship back to where we were last week, um, just talking about the precious Holy Spirit, because so much of what the Pharisees were lacking is found in the person of the Holy Spirit. So how does the Holy Spirit relate to this idea of grace? Well, his name is the Spirit of grace. Let me go to Hebrews chapter 10 with you guys. It says, how much severe punishment do you think we will deserve he will deserve, he who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. Based on his name, do you think the Holy Spirit is more focused on law or on grace? Grace. He's not called the Spirit of law, he's called Spirit of grace. The old covenant was the law. Jesus came and said, it's now fulfilled. It's over. I've, I've met all the requirements of the law. And at the cross, Jesus instituted this new covenant. And one of the major differences between the old covenant and the new covenant is that in the new covenant, we're empowered and we're sealed by the spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only gives us the ability to do righteous things, but the Holy Spirit makes us holy and righteous. Under the old covenant, they needed the Holy Spirit to help them do the works, but in the new covenant, we need the Holy Spirit because he makes us holy as our identity. He makes us righteous as our identity. And again, I don't feel like my actions make me very holy and, and righteous. Well, that's the mistake that the people make about the new covenant. They think it's about our righteousness. That's the old covenant. The old righteousness was about your covenant. It was about your righteousness, sorry. The new covenant is not about your works. It's not about our, our own holiness. The Bible is very clear 
that there's only one person's holiness and adequacy that makes us holy and adequate. And his name is Jesus. It's also very clear that it's the Holy Spirit who brings us into this place of adequacy. Say adequacy. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. In other words, hey, you Pharisees, this is just going to destroy everything you think right here. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate. Are you adequate? You, you have been made adequate, past tense. Holy, righteous, pure, beloved who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Keep that up there. Look at that last, the last two lines. The letter does what? And the spirit does what? The letter. That, it's talking about the law, the old covenant. The letter. The law kills, but the Holy Spirit gives life. The new covenant is the covenant of grace. Grace is what defines it. Grace is what empowers it. Grace is what sustains it. And if he's the spirit of grace, he's the spirit of the new covenant. And we know that anytime we see God's name, it talks, it means two things. His name means his nature, his identity, and his promise. His nature and his promise. That means it's who he is, what he does, what he likes to do, what he promises to do. That means that the spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit, that it's his joy and delight to only operate in grace. No wonder that under the old covenant, under the law, the Holy Spirit was only, he only had an existence as a culture of visitation. In other words, he would visit somebody and then he would ascend. He would visit somebody and he would send. He never stayed under the old covenant. But under grace, under this new covenant, now he lives within us. Our bodies are his temple. And I I think that what happened is that the Holy Spirit needed grace to be a landing pad for him because he's the spirit of grace. And the law was incompatible with it because the law or the letter does what? Kills, but the spirit gives life. The law made us inadequate, but it's the spirit of God who makes us adequate. The, the law pointed to sin, but it's the spirit of God who points to Jesus, to grace. The law pointed to man's lack and lack of worth, but the spirit reveals Jesus's worth. Do you see how he's the spirit of grace? We've been sealed with him in this new covenant. The Holy Spirit requires grace and the Holy Spirit is the spirit of grace. That's why we have a culture of him staying and abiding now because it's a new covenant. Are you guys okay? I think I'm okay. One of the things that drove the Pharisees crazy about Jesus was he would choose to operate in grace time after time after time when the law said to operate in judgment. Again, law versus grace, law versus grace. Go down the list uh, from the woman caught in adultery to the healing on the Sabbath to touching lepers. Jesus broke so many of their rules and traditions. Uh, He broke so many that the Pharisees began to consider Jesus's works of Satan. It's like if you break this many rules, clearly you've broke too many. You must be of Satan. And because he was breaking all of these rules that they had committed their entire lives to, His operating in grace was a direct insult to everything that they knew, understood, and believed. It was absolutely turning their world upside down because under the law, under the letter, salvation was earned. And you'd have to behave your your way through life. And the most well-behaved people were therefore the most spiritual. And if you were the most spiritual, you'd be given the most authority. And if you had the most authority, you could lead others. You could tell them what to do. And you made them have salvation by works by making them jump through all of your rules and your regulations. And if that's the case, then there isn't necessarily a joy to salvation, is there? It's, It's more like the rigors of salvation. But Jesus, who came and was empowered by the spirit of grace, didn't just 
show people the joy of their salvation. He became the joy of their salvation. And everywhere he went, he brought them into this light and this peace. And he began to show us that God's grace, right? God's grace, his undeserved kindness, his undeserved favor. He began to show us it's that while we're still enemies to him, he chose to save us. He chose to die for us. That's so unfair. But God doesn't care about fairness. He cares about justice. He cares about love. It was his grace that covered our guilt with righteousness. It was grace that brought us from enemies as to adopted sons and daughters. It's grace that keeps us in his family. It's grace that brings us to the foot of the cross while our lives of sin are trying to convince us that we're not worthy to approach that throne of grace. It's grace that not only removes our sins, our pasts, our failures, our low points, but it actually transforms those things into distinct areas of victory and power. It's not just him covering those things. It's him saying, I'm actually going to make a monument of righteousness where there used to be a pit of hell. It's grace that enables us to experience the joy of salvation, not just the rigors. It's grace that brings us into what the Bible calls the river of his delight. I want to swim in that river. It's grace that allows us to no longer fear coming too close, too close to him, right? Because under the old covenant, God would say, don't get too close to me. Don't look at me. I can only show you me from behind. My glory is too much. You can't handle this. But it's grace that says, come closer, draw near. Let the little children come to me. All who are weary, all who are thirsty, all who are hungry. Where there was once condemnation, now, he says, there's joy. There's a joy in being lovesick. It's this endless invitation and satisfaction of drawing closer that we never had access to under the old covenant. It's grace that enables us to no longer have to be focused on working for promises, but now it allows us to rest in the promises that have already been paid and purchased. There's nothing we have to earn. There's nothing we have to do anymore. And it's because of grace that he chooses to reward us, even in our unworthiness. It's so unfair. But does God care about fairness? Mm -mm. He cares about love. It was last week or two weeks ago, I read a pretty hefty portion, portion of um, Psalm 103, and I just want to highlight one of the, the verses from it again. It says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Just look at that for a minute. That's so unfair because we need to be dealt with according to our sins. And we need to be rewarded according to our iniquities. At least that's what the Pharisees would tell us. That's what the law would tell us. We're no, under, no longer under law. Now we're under his grace. And it's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace, who brings us into that positioning right there. It's the Holy Spirit, the spirit of grace, who allows us to not ever have to feel the sting of sin and death and the law any longer. This is what the Pharisees were missing. You won't find any Pharisee in Scripture uh, who ever demonstrates any fruit of the Spirit. Because fruit of the Spirit is always a byproduct of time with the Spirit. And if he's the spirit of grace and the very thing that your life is devoted to is the law, which is anti-grace, there's no way you're spending time with the spirit of grace. And so when you look at the Pharisees and you think of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control, go down the list. You won't find any of those things ever mentioned about any of the Pharisees. Maybe Nicodemus, but he's the one-off kind of guy. So 
So can you guys go back, I think it's two slides, to the Hebrew 10, 29 verse? How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Well, according to Hebrews 10, 29, it's when we purposefully choose to trample the Son of God and what he paid for, grace, that it becomes an insult to the Holy Spirit because he's the Spirit of grace. This insults the spirit of grace, which is, is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus, over, I mean, this is in Hebrews, but Jesus basically says this to the Pharisees in, in so many words throughout the Gospels. The law stands in direct opposition to grace, and those who live and die by the law will always stand in opposition to that spirit of grace. Who is the spirit of grace? The Holy Spirit. Why do you think that most legalistic believers almost always reject any of the works of the Holy Spirit in their gatherings? Because he's the spirit of grace, not the spirit of law. And if you're a people who are clinging to the letter and to the law, remember the letter brings what? Death. But the spirit brings Life, But if you're rejecting life, guess what you're embracing? Death. Those rejecting, those worshiping the law end up rejecting the one who brings life. That's just how it is. The spirit of grace actually shows up in the Old Testament too. Um, about 500 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Zechariah was speaking to um, a people living in chaos, living in fear. Um, Zechariah is one of the most messianic books of the Old Testament. It's one of the most quoted books of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And Zechariah comes bringing this message of encouragement to Israel and um, talks about the return of the Lord and finishing this ruined temple that they needed to rebuild. And over and over, uh, Zechariah promises about this coming Messiah. Hold off on that just yet. And what Zechariah does is he continually calls the, the Israelites into this place of repentance. You need to repent. Uh, he was calling them to turn from their apathy. They just didn't care about stuff anymore. And Zechariah is basically saying, you need to care about this. You need to turn away from your sin. You need to turn and fear the Lord. You need to turn toward him. Because when you repent, you turn from one thing toward something else. And so in Zechariah 12.10, it says this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that, or then, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like bitter weeping over a firstborn. So here, again, the Holy Spirit, he has this name, uh, the spirit of grace and supplication. This time they've added supplication. A name always means nature and promises, identity and promises. That means that the spirit of grace and supplication, that's who he is, that's what he does, that's what he's, he's longing to do. And in this passage, when you look at it, when the Lord poured out his spirit on this weak, dying, apathetic people, he broke through their resistance by pouring out grace, not law. He poured out the spirit of grace pouring out the spirit of grace and supplication. And when he poured out this grace, it freed their hearts to call on him in repentance. But it wasn't till grace came that repentance came. Do you understand? Grace brings people to repentance. Grace does, not law. Undeserved kindness, undeserved goodness, undeserved favor turns people's hearts to repent. Romans 2.4, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? I don't see any mention of the law in there. It's his kindness to us when we're sinning. It's his kindness to us when we're being stubborn. It's his kindness to us when we're walking away from him that actually brings us back to him. It's his tolerance. It's his patience. 
It's this undeserved, unearned grace that brings people into repentance. It changes their minds to see things from his point of view. And it's through grace that hardened hearts become softened hearts. And it's through grace that they become flesh and turn to him in love. Grace actually creates love. And it's the spirit of grace and the spirit of supplication that turns the hardest hearts from death to life. And that's what the Holy Spirit does because that's who he is. That's his name. That's his nature. He enjoys doing that. We think we have to convince him, but if it's his nature, if that's what he enjoys doing, that means he loves to show kindness to those who don't deserve it. Even the person that you don't think deserves it. Even you. I tried not to make eye contact when I said that. Even you. The old covenant was the works-based covenant. It paid close attention to what you did. It paid attention to what kind of sin you did, how bad that sin was, what degree it was. But the new covenant and grace is very different because it says that no matter what you've done, you could have the smallest, tiniest infraction, or you could have the be-all, end-all, big, huge sin. No matter what you've done, grace actually draws us closer to the Father. It actually pulls us closer to freedom, and it pulls us into forgiveness and mercy that overflows in abundance. Because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And what he does is he lures us closer. He lures us in and he draws us closer to his kindness and his tolerance and his patience and his forbearance. And they're the old covenant. Fear was the motivator. The focus was sin. But in the new covenant, it's his love and undeserved kindness that draws us near. It's grace. I want to pray for you guys. Just pray with me. Spirit of grace, fill the room. Undeserved kindness, undeserved favor, tolerance and patience, just fill this room because there's people who need to repent and this is how it happens. I think some people in this room actually need to receive the spirit of grace right now, to receive his undeserved kindness, receive his undeserved favor. And you keep saying, I, I'm hearing you. It's like I hear in your head right now. I hear people in this room saying, but I don't deserve it. That's literally how grace works is that you don't deserve it. If you deserved it, it wouldn't be grace anymore. And so tolerance, patience, kindness, goodness actually flows over you right now. His focus is not on your sin because that's your works. What his focus is, is on his son. It's on the blood that Jesus shed. That covers all things in such an unfair way, but in such a just way. And so spirit of grace, flow in this room, flow over people's hearts. Infiltrate temples in this room, because you said our bodies are your temple. Thank you, King, for not rewarding us according to our sins or paying us according to what our iniquities deserve. Thank you that you actually give us it says the riches of your kindness because that's what you deserve. So let the riches of your kindness flow in this house over every single person in here. Mercy and grace, you are welcome here. We will not fight you. We will not pour. We will not put walls up to keep you out. Yeah, let, let him love you tonight, just for a minute. Let him love you in this moment. King of kings, Lord of lords, righteous one, glorious one, holy one. It's because of what you've done. And we receive everything that you've done for us right now. We receive it. We choose to take it. We lay hold of it. We won't let you pass by, Jesus. And so we glorify your name. You're worth it. You're worth our breath. You're worth our praise every day of our lives. 
You're so worth it. Not that we could ever pay you back, God, but that's how we want to spend our lives is just being close to you. So would you show us tangibly? Would you touch us tangibly? Let us see your face. Let us see your face. Not in this metaphor way, but literally, I want to see your face. When I'm lying on my bed at night, I want to see your face. I want to hear your voice. Come into the room. Come into our rooms. Come into our space. God, take whatever you want. Shake whatever you want. Purify whatever you want. But I need to see your face. And I just ask that tangible mountains would be moved in people's lives, not later, but right now, tonight. Whether it's physically or spiritually, that blind eyes would be opened right now in the name of Jesus. By his grace, by his mercy, by his undeserved favor, open eyes, Jesus. Yeah, that right now impossible situations would suddenly become possible. Not because of our works, but because of his works, because of his grace. So spirit of grace, flow over every circumstance. Spirit of grace, flow over every hill and valley and and destitute place, every desert, every dry riverbed. We just say, come to life. Waters flow. Grace flow. Triumph flow. Victory flow. Thank you for tonight, God. Thank you that you're always willing to meet us. Thank you that you're always first in line to be with us. I know that's not how it works, but that is your heart. You're just, you're, you're desperately seeking us, and I'm so grateful for that, that we don't have to hunt you down, that we don't have to find you. It says, the Bible says that you hunt us down, that you find us first, and then we get to respond to you. Thank you for always being there for us, God. Thank you for never turning away, for never leaving us, for never um, rejecting us, for never putting us on the cross, that you chose the cross instead of us having to do so. And I bless Reunion. I bless the other churches on this island. I bless everything that you're doing, God. This is your move of God. This is your house. This is your island. Let your mercy and grace flow everywhere that you, you put your foot, God. This isn't an us thing. It's a you thing. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on Oahu as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, God. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For more teaching like this, subscribe to this podcast. If you would like more information about Reunion Hawaii Church, our website is reunionhawaii.com. If you're in Honolulu, join us Sundays at 5, live at Kahalama. Aloha.